following reading is from Richard I massacres prisoners after taking Acre, the 2nd to the 20th of August, 1191, a Saracen view of the Crusades. This proposition the Sultan rejected, knowing full well that if he were to deliver the money, the cross and the prisoners, while our men were still kept captive by the Christians, he would have no security against treachery on the part of the enemy, and this would be a great disaster to Islam. Then the King of England, seeing all the delays interposed by the Sultan to the execution of the treaty, acted perfidiously as regards to his Muslim prisoners. On their yielding the town of Acre, he had engaged to grant them life, adding that if the Sultan carried out the bargain, he would give them freedom and suffer them to carry off their children and wives. If the Sultan did not fulfil his engagements, they were to be made slaves. Now the king broke his promises to them and made an open display of what he had until now kept hidden in his heart. By carrying out what he had intended to do after he had received the money and the Christian prisoners, it is thus that people in his nation ultimately admitted. In the afternoon of Tuesday 27th, Rajab, 20th of August, about four o'clock, he came out on horseback with all the Christian army, knights, footmen, turcopoles, light-armed soldiers of the Order of the St. John of Jerusalem, and advanced to the pits at the foot of the hill of Ayadieh, to which place he had already sent on his tents. The Christians, on reaching the middle of the plain that stretches between this hill and that of Kaysan, close to which place the Sultan's advance guard had drawn back, ordered all the Muslim prisoners, whom martyrdom God had decreed for this day, to be brought before him. They numbered more than three thousand, and were all bound with ropes. The Christians then flung themselves upon them all at once, and massacred them with sword and lance in cold blood. Our advance guard had already told the Sultan of the enemy's movements, and he sent it some reinforcements, but only after the massacre. The Muslims, seeing what was being done to the prisoners, rushed against the Christians, and in the combat, which lasted till nightfall, Several were slain and wounded on either side. On the morrow morning our people gathered at the spot and found the Muslims stretched out upon the grounds as martyrs for the faith. They even recognised some of the dead, and the sight was a great affliction to them. The enemy had only spared the prisoners of note, and such as were strong enough to work. The motives of this massacre are differently told. According to some, the captives were slain by way of reprisal for the death of those Christians whom the Muslims had slayed. Others say that the King of England, on deciding to attempt the conquest of Ascalon, thought it unwise to leave so many prisoners in the town after his departure. God alone knows what the real reason was. This podcast was recorded before Palestinian Hamas terrorists massacred over 1,300 Israelis, mostly civilian men, women and children, on the 7th of October, 2023. The title of this show is Bloody Violent History, and today's subject could be said to be close to the centre of the premise of this podcast. Our subject today is massacre. Human history, our past, has borne witness to massacre on all continents bar Antarctica, and in all time periods during the ascent of man. Before we continue, I should mention that we are in sight of the end of our third series. 
If you've enjoyed our shows, please take a moment to give us a review. Now to proceed. The Encyclopedia Britannica 11th edition gives the definition for massacre as the wholesale indiscriminate killing of persons. The Oxford English Dictionary defines massacre as a general slaughter of people, a carnage. The origin of the word is obscure. Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus fires a shiver down the spine when he announces, for I must talk of murders, rapes and massacres. It is a difficult subject, so we have divided it into five areas to try and make sense of why murder lurks in the human heart. The five are foundation, when a massacre abets or triggers the foundation of a nation. Genocide, the deliberate destruction, killing of a group of people. Rampage, an act of violence which gets out of hand and leads to massacre. Exploitation, brutality, which leads to a complete destruction of empathy, and again, massacre. And lastly, cull, an almost mechanical exercise in killing to tie up loose ends. Before we discuss these, let's consider first what is happening today at the Ukrainian-Polish border, and then shift our minds back to 1943. Well, you didn't want to be in East Galicia, uh, that part of Poland-Ukraine, in 1943, because it was when the Ukrainian insurgent army, the UPA, decided uh, to go out and massacre Poles, uh, mostly women and children. Um, they saw the Poles as a threat. They thought that were there any post-war settlement, Poland might take over that part of Ukraine, what they considered to be Ukraine, that had a Ukrainian majority. And they went out to kill them. That is why in July 2023, uh, President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine and the Polish Premier stood side by side in Volhynia and uh, paid respects to the victims. Some say it was between 50 and 100,000 innocents. So what, they were, they were patching up? That the, the, particular open source. Yes, not only was it an open source, but it shows how massacre sort of goes through human history. It's really a waypoint. The mass graves caused by massacres are, are stepping stones through history. You've mentioned those five areas we're going to talk about, but but it demonstrates that massacre is part of the human condition. It's a frightful part of the human condition, but it is often there. And massacre can either be a spasm of violence or it can be considered and pragmatic approach by the authorities or by, in this case, Ukrainian insurgent army. Uh, it, you know, it's there as part of nationalism. It can be fueled by religion, ethnicity, politics. It, it it has so many strands to it, and it can often mark the start of conflict or the end of conflict. And quite often, it it showcases a nation. It it, it enters the foundation myth of a fan, of, of a nation, and it, it creates sores that last a long time, undercurrents that last a long time. Well, the the beginning of the Second World War, when the Soviets had their pact with the Nazis. There was another massacre which involved the Soviets and the Poles as victims at the Katyn Woods in April, May 1940. 
it's worth talking about because you know, what I want to look at really is both the sort of hands-on approach and the, the arm's length approach to things such as massacres. And the cat in wood, you know, 22,000 Polish officers and intellectuals murdered by the NKVD, the Soviet uh, secret police in 1940, it was totally barbaric. And if you want a hands-on example of what happened, the NKVD chief executioner, the, 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 the Lord High Executioner of Joseph Stalin, was a guy called Vasily Blokin. And this man, out of the 22,000, is believed to have killed 7,000 with his Tokarov pistol. And if you actually do the maths, Tom, it is hideous. I mean, it lasted, people say, about 28 days. If he kills 7,000, that's 250 a day. So he was really killing one person every two minutes. He got through 31 magazines of his Tokarov pistol. It, it was absolutely extraordinary. But this is what was expected of these executioners. And it shows how brutalizing not only the security state can be, but how brutalizing war can be. And all the way through history, and certainly in that region, uh, massacres uh, come all the way through. That's even before you get onto the Holocaust and the genocides that happened there. So that example is a good example of how, after you fired the first bullet into the back of someone's head, firing the 7,000th bullet, um, you're inured to it. Your, your death and um, the value of life has kind of vanished. I would like to say that actually Vasily Blokin um, died an alcoholic in the uh, 50s. So I think he was a pretty miserable specimen by the time he departed. Uh, I think he was earth. a pretty miserable specimen when he was a major general as well in the security system of, of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, if we, if we jump um, forward to the end of the war, when the Americans were pushing hard against the Japanese, some of them, American troops, and these would be Marines, I guess, in the Pacific, were fairly brutalised, heavily brutalised by what they had seen and how they'd had to fight. Oh, of course. And, and you can tell that by the, the, the sort of general approach. I mean, it was so horrific, the war against the Japanese on the islands of the Pacific. It, it, it was so dehumanising. I mean, Life magazine at one point had, had a woman holding up a Japanese skull and, and the caption was... Uh, war factory worker uh, thanks her navy boyfriend for for the Jap skull, and she's just holding up this Japanese skull. Well, she's going to put it on the uh, chimney piece. Well, I mean, they were used as ashtrays, they were used as mm. as candle holders. I mean, this became standard practice. And you have a quote there of an American colonel who came across um, some young guys uh, who were who had stuck. Japanese heads on stakes, decapitated these, these heads and put them on stakes facing the enemy. I mean, the, these, were, these were teenage American soldiers uh, in this war. And um, when he pulled them up on it, he accused them of being uh, animals. Jesus, man, what are you doing? You're acting like animals. And this dirty, stinking kid says to him, that's right, Colonel, we are animals. We live like animals. We eat and are treated like animals. What the fuck do you expect? Yeah, it, it, it just shows what war does. And, and we talked about the hands-on approach to massacre by 
NKVD executioners. If if you look at the war in the Pacific and you see the the sort of arms length massacres, the the, the Japanese when they were losing the, the 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 pressure on Japanese civilians to kill themselves was absolutely massive. I mean, somewhere like Saipan, for example, when the Japanese were losing, they took themselves to. Um, Marpy Point, which is now known as Banzai Cliff or Suicide Cliff, and they were throwing themselves off. There, there, there's cine footage of uh, Japanese mothers holding their babies and jumping off the cliff. It is absolutely horrendous. Then you go on to Okinawa in 1945, you had up to 100,000 uh, Japanese civilians, and they were encouraged to take grenades and kill themselves in 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 group sessions with with grenades, and and that in in a, in a sense is sort of massacre by default. It's certainly sort of arms length massacre. But but this is what war can do. This is what can happen. And if the massacre, the conditions of massacre are so appalling that people to to, to get out of it will try and kill themselves because it's a fate worse than the torture and terrible things that are going to be done to them in the interval. And you can believe the propaganda about the other side as being hellish and damnable and everything else. So you don't want to fall into their hands. And at the same time, not only does it mean you don't want to fall into their hands, it means that when they fall into your hands as captives, you are going to treat them as, 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 as beneath any kind of dignity. And, and, and so butchery ensues. Bo Meng, who is a survivor of the Pol Pot uh, Cambodian genocide uh, said that prisoners were trying in every way to commit suicide. When they ran out of useful information, prisoners were sent to the killing fields. Child prisoners were taken away from their families and sent to the killing fields where they were smashed against the Chankiri tree. Oh, and so many people know the Chankiri tree. I mean, the, it, it, it is so infamous. And it's now festooned with bangles. And I mean, it is one of those spots that so many people go to. It's, um, it's become sort of, as far as I'm concerned, sort of ghoul tourism. And, um, but, but it is important that people bear witness to it. Okay, Jamie, that's uh, a good start. To our first main chapter heading, Foundation, the foundation of, of nations as a result of a massacre. We could talk about the Boston Massacre of 1770, which led to American independence. On March the 5th, 1770, nine British redcoats shot at a group of three to 400 colonists who were giving them some abuse. Five of these colonists were killed by the soldiers. This was called a massacre by the Patriots, and people such as Paul Revere produced pamphlets which fueled this anti-British sentiment, along with their tax, you know, the famous uh, uh, taxation acts, British taxes on Americans to help pay for the Seven Years' War. So on both sides, in fact, the Patriots and the Loyalists were publishing materials, spinning it one way and the other, to either downplay it or to upplay it. But it had its part in persuading people it was time to pull away from England. That's the thing, uh, that massacre, it, maybe it's too strong a term in this case, given, given how, how few the numbers were, but massacre or killings of any kind can be used by either side as propaganda, as, as a means to fuel their agenda. And it's always useful to a downtrodden or oppressed people 
that they have something to latch onto, that they have a killing to hold onto and hold up as as a sign of the cruelty and barbarity of the other side. And that is why it leads into the foundation myth, because overthrowing the oppressor is really what it's about. You know, inspiring... Um, opposition is what it's about and 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 so the boston massacre is is worth holding up in 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 that regard is worth talking about so yes it's small uh, in regard to say the millions who might have died in china or in the jewish pogrom um but it was latched onto as as a way of promoting what they wanted for their future. Of course, and if you go to Bulgaria and the Bartak massacre of 1876, there you get real numbers involved. I mean, you you had a a town, a village of 8,000, and some 6,000 were slaughtered there by the Ottomans, by the Bashi bazooks, the the crazy heads, as they were called, this sort of degenerate uh, volunteer group uh, sent in by the Ottomans, a sort of militia. And like a lot of militias, a bit like the Einsatzgruppen and other groups used by the Nazis during the Holocaust, you know, these sort of rather unofficial groups, these paramilitary groups, uh, aren't governed by military norms. And they're the ones who commit appalling atrocities. I now feel bad uh, laughing at Captain Haddock from the Tintin books, who, when he was um, insulting someone, would call them, you know, uh, bashy bazooks. That was one of his favourite derogatory terms, and I always thought it sounded like, you know, some sort of whirling dervish or something. But they clearly were a lot more unpleasant. Yeah, than yeah. That. Better to be called a blistering barnacle, I think. But yes, but but or a cephalopod. <laughs> <laughs> but but to this day, you know, that massacre at Bartak is is, is seen uh, by by Bulgaria as 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 part of its foundation legend, part well, of the foundation stone of the nation and of national identity. Well, Walter Baring, who was the second secretary at the British Embassy in Constantinople, sent a report in, in which he said that the village consisted of 800 houses with 8,000 inhabitants, and that 6,000 had been massacred. And the first thing I saw was some 20 or 30 dogs devouring human bodies. And in the place where they'd been feasting, I counted 62 skulls in about 20 yards. Here, inside and around the church, Corpses lay so thick that one could hardly avoid treading on them, and the stench was so fearful that any examination was impossible. The women were sitting on the ruins of their houses, wailing and singing the most melancholy sort of dirge, which could be heard some way from the village. And you can see that 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 part of the world has its fair share of massacres. Again, throughout history, you look at the um, massacre at Srebrenica, with thousands of Bosnians killed, boys and and men murdered um, in front of the United Nations, dragged away um, in front of the Dutch peacekeepers, and and how that has become part of of national legend, that has become part of the foundation myth. You know, it's strange that blood has to be spilled. If you look at the war in Ukraine, no one is ever going to forget uh, Lyman and Butcher, you know, no one is going to forget the, the 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 man shot on a bike as he cycled by. You know, no one is going to forget these these random atrocities committed by Russian forces. You know, that is going to enter the foundation stone, the foundation legend of Ukraine, 
as it, as it emerges from this war. Still on the subject of formation stories for nations, uh, one of the most famous, of course, is India and Gandhi's role in obtaining independence for that country. Completely. And, and it's amazing how one of the moves towards that, one of the things that convinced many people to join that independence movement and a peaceful independence movement was an act of violence, the Amritsar massacre in 1919. You know, here you had a festival, a festival of, of the start of the Sikh New Year, a festival of happiness and agriculture. And the situation was misread. Yes, there were protests, but there's no doubt that Brigadier General Dyer, the British uh, commander, really overreacted. And his troops opened fire and 1,500 people were killed and probably another 1,500 or more wounded. It, it was absolute carnage. But, but you can see that that moment... And there were protests against the Rolat Act, the, the, the idea that, that people could, could be t detained um, without charge, detained without parole. Which had been brought in in the First World War because they had to have emergency measures but hadn't been repealed. Completely. And you see how many laws in Britain have been repealed since the First World War. It, it's, it's like many forms of taxation come in during wartime. But you know, this, this massacre, this, this terrible act of violence, certainly created a groundswell of opposition, certainly helped the independence movement move forward. And that's why it's, it's worth mentioning. Again, it shows that sometimes some good can grow out of, of these things, that, that, that peaceful movements can grow out of violence. And that's why massacres can, can sometimes signal the end of that kind of violence Tipping rather point. than just the start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, uh, Gandhi's approach to it was very novel, peaceful, non-violent protesting. But as we know, it depends which country you're peacefully protesting against because there are quite a lot of countries that when you do that I think of I don't know Tiananmen Square or something like that where they just move in with the tanks and kill you well any kind of resistance certainly in countries that are occupied for example you can get terrible atrocities committed against entire towns and villages and we saw that in the second world war places like Lidici or or Oradour sur mer I mean, all these places, you know, that were burnt to the ground and the population massacred. I mean, this is this is what happens, and and certainly, you know, we mentioned in our civil war podcast things like the Badajoz uh, massacre and the bullring there in 1936. You know, these things, as I said right at the start, are waypoints. You know, they're stepping stones through these these overall wars through overall conflict and sometimes they can lead to peace on the other side it's sort of never again right the next main chapter heading is genocide um, and nowadays I suppose the genocide that's most talked about is the killing of the Jews in the Second World War by the Nazis but there have been many other examples in the past and we can go back to 1572 and the St Bartholomew massacre which was the massacre by the Catholics of the Protestants. 
Queen Catherine de' Medici, the mother of King Charles IX, ordered the massacre when the king's sister, who, who was Margaret, Margot, married the Protestant King Henry III of Navarre. And uh, he was Huguenot, and many Huguenots gathered in Paris to attend the wedding. Before this, there was an assassination attempt on the leader of the Huguenots, Admiral Gaspard de Coligny, which failed initially, but then Charles IX uh, ordered him and the other Huguenot leaders to be killed, and the slaughter just spread throughout Paris and outside the capital. So by the end, between five and 30,000 Huguenots were dead, and of course they had the diaspora, which meant many came to England, and why we have that uh, great cultural link to the Huguenots in the City of London, amongst other places. And it's fascinating that these sort of massacres, when they start, they, they get so quickly out of control. I mean, it starts as an official policy, but it, it, it takes hold. And it often starts with either a coronation or a funeral or a wedding. And like a bushfire, really. Yeah, I mean, you, you go back to, to London in 1189 and the, the coronation of Richard the Lionheart, Richard Coeur de Lyon, the Richard I. Uh, the, the Jews weren't allowed into Westminster Abbey for the, for the ceremony. And Londoners fell upon them and, and killed them. And that started a wave of killings, a, a pogrom across England. And, and so often what happens is that the ideology and the politics or ethnic difference, you know, that is taken up. That, you know, these undercurrents already exist and they're fueled. You know, it just takes a spark. And, and what's fascinating about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is that the ambassador out in Paris at the time, the English ambassador, was none other than Francis Walsingham, the great spy chief of Elizabeth I. And this was before she came to the throne. And he saw what was going on and thought, this is what happens when the Catholics take control. So when Elizabeth became queen and he became her loyal secret service head, he was determined that that wasn't going to happen in England. And so, in a way, it goes back to our first category, foundation legend, the foundation stone, that that massacre really set in train the thought processes and the security apparatus that, that protected Protestant England during the Elizabethan era. So, so you can view that massacre in France as being of seminal importance to what happened in England and the creation of, of Elizabethan England. And he was fortunate to have a highly intelligent queen who understood that though his advice was to guard against the dangers of the Catholics, she didn't turn round to him and say, well, let's round up or polish off the Catholics in England because about half the nation was still... Catholics. Oh, she didn't. I mean, you, you, you essentially had to wait till Edward VI for, for, for this great sort of Protestant surge and the desecrating of, of shrines and things like that, the smashing of stained glass. You know, that, that was the next step. What did uh, she say? She didn't make windows into the souls of men. Yes, it's, it's, not a bad, it's not a bad quote. And, uh, you know, after Bloody Mary, I think people were pleased not to have that level of religious intolerance imposed on them. Because it just swung backwards and forwards, wasn't it? You know, I mean, it, it, Edward, it, it, was, Edward was Protestant, Mary was Catholic, and they just sort of took out the, the other side each time. Well, it always, always happened, yeah. Uh, just so we don't 
give the impression that all these terrible things happen on the uh, European continent. The Chinese massacre in 1639, also known as the Second Sangley Rebellion, was in the Philippines. So the Spanish were in charge and there were Chinese Filipinos working out there for the Spanish in the Philippines. They attempted a rebellion in 1603, which failed, and they petitioned the Spanish king for self-government in 1630. This was rejected. The Chinese population in the Philippines continued to grow, so it was at about 33 to 45,000 by 1639. They were well organised, these rebels, but very poorly armed, and they couldn't stand up to the Spanish and Filipino forces. So when they rebelled on the 2nd of December... The Chinese started fast. The Spanish then piled in, and on the 5th of December, any Chinese found, and these were, after all, people who were working for the Spanish-Filipino government, any Chinese that were found were executed, and there was a reward for each Chinese head. So out of the up to 45,000, more than half of them were just killed. I think this is a problem with that, with any insurgency, any uprising. I think if you're poorly armed, you don't really have a chance. I mean, if you look at the French resistance during the Second World War, exactly the same thing happened. If you don't have uh, training, if you don't have outside help, in this case from the Special Operations Executive in Britain, or from the Free French, and you have an arms supply coming in, and you have places to hide, you are going to be tracked down. And the fact that the Spanish were offering rewards for every head that was cut off and delivered of a Chinese in the Philippines. It, that was the incentive for the Filipinos to get involved uh, against the Chinese there. And it's so similar to what was going on. We'll talk about it in our exploitation section uh, with the uh, poor people of the Congo and Belgian Congo. Um, when severed hands became the currency, that's how people earned money. And so people were collecting severed hands. And you can see in so many of these colonial outreaches, certainly among the Spanish, the Belgians, Portuguese, the Dutch, you know, the level of violence going on was, was extreme, was huge. And, it, you know, massacre was simply part of the uh, control mechanism. Uh, and, and genocide was not discouraged, shall we say. We can't talk about genocide without talking about um, the Jewish genocide. There are so many examples of individual actions in the war, in the Second World War. But Babi Yar is a particularly grim story. I think they're all grim stories and, and apologies really for covering it. But it is important to, to see how massacre really plays its part in genocide and holocaust, that, that, that they are things that stand out even within the the wider atrocity and Babiar stands out because in two days uh, above this ravine 33,000 Jews and Romani gypsies were shot bayoneted or thrown alive over the ravine to their deaths it was unbelievably horrendous and it was the usual German, Nazi, Einsatz, Gruppen uh, involved. And this was part of their industry of slaughter. And one thinks that is bad enough. And it was, until that point, the largest 
massacre in that time frame during during the war. There was um, a there was a report by the Einsatzkommando a couple of days after the massacre, and because we talked a little bit about rampage, which we're coming onto, where things you know get out of control, but this was so carefully thought out. Uh, they um, in in the report uh, they're pleased as punch at how they dealt with it because they were concerned about the sheer number of Jewish people who they had to round up. So they had this scheme where, whereby they um, put a lot of posters up, wall posters, telling the Jewish population that they needed to go to a certain place so that they could be um, evacuated to their new homeland. And, more, and they weren't expecting it to be as successful as it was. 30,000 Jews arrived who up until the very moment of their execution still believed it was about their resettlement. And uh, the report finishes with uh, the note, thanks to an extremely clever organisation, it was successful. Yes, and these reports were always going back to Heinrich Himmler because that's who they wanted to, to please. And someone like Heinrich Himmler hated the actual visceral connection with the slaughter you know every time he went to to Auschwitz when he actually went to any of these camps he he was appalled by what he, he didn't saw. have the stomach for he it. didn't have the stomach for it he, he it was simply remote killing and so Babiar for him was just another uh, disposal and and the more efficient it was the the better and of course one thinks oh it couldn't get worse but then uh, a month later in Odessa the Nazis then killed 50,000 Jews and cleared out the, the Jews from that, that area and, and, and massacred them. And not to be outdone, two years later, Operation uh, Harvest Festival, as the Germans called it. The, uh, they, in action, Erntefest. Yes, yes. They then went and, and killed another 45,000 in the concentration camps, helped by the Ukrainian collaborators. It was unbelievably appalling what, 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 what was going on. But it's so difficult to, to pick these elements out against a backdrop of overall horror. But, but it is just worth mentioning these, these individual actions um, that, that, that were so barbaric. And, and we, we don't seem to be able to comprehend. But it's worth mentioning just to show that human beings, once they have an agenda once they're fueled by politics and once they have this hatred and absolution as well almost isn't it You're yeah they it they, they see it they see it as a cleansing and you know it's very easy whether through politics or through you know political ideology or through ethnicity and tribal difference uh, or through religion uh, to have that view and and that's why it's it's, it's worth putting genocide into this you know, into this category of massacres. We mustn't totally despair about the uh, the Jewish Holocaust in the Second World War because in terms of there being no resistance, I mean, famously, probably most famously, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of, of 1943 was where the Polish-Jewish community decided to, to fight back. 46,000 were killed and captured, of which 36,000 were sent to concentration camps. But it was the largest revolt of Jewish people in the Second World War. Uh, there was only one surviving Jewish combat uh, organisation commander from it. Uh, but he was heard to quote 
that he did not want to allow the Germans alone to pick the time and place of our deaths. Yeah, it was an incredible resistance. I mean, amazingly brave. And the Germans just destroyed the entire area. I mean, absolutely wiped it off the map. And then a year later, of course, you have the Warsaw Uprising in 1944, which is when the Soviets were pursuing the Germans, the Wehrmacht. The whole of Warsaw rose up. It wasn't just uh, the Jewish contingent. You know, in that occasion, the, the Germans destroyed sort of 90% of the city. Yes, and hundreds of thousands were killed in that 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 uh, uprising. And 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 the Soviets had stood back during the the clearing of the ghettos, and 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 they stood back during uh, you know what happened in in the Warsaw Uprising because they wanted the Germans to deal with any resistance groups because those resistance groups would also have been anti-Soviet. So they 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 were thrilled at what the Germans were doing. Uh, and then the Soviets came in and, and finished things off. 200,000 civilians killed. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it is worth using this really as a, as a, as a, as a, as a sort of a, a, a waypoint in, in genocide. And, and everyone thought that, that we had moved on from that. And then, of course, you had the, the, the killing fields um, of Cambodia, and that again was was on a on a different scale of of, of death and destruction. Well, there's a criticism today that uh, people uh, go on and on about the Nazis, especially younger people that they they're taught about the Nazis, but actually more people have died from communist policies uh, than fascist policies in the last hundred years. And Chairman Mao and the, what happened in China in the fifties and sixties is a very good example. Yeah, and it's extraordinary how little it's covered. I mean, some people talk about Stalin and obviously his purges, his terror, the gulag system. But but China has sort of stayed remarkably behind the bamboo curtain, screened off. But if you look at the sort of anti-rightist campaign of the late 1950s, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were, were persecuted, prosecuted and executed, tortured. Uh, you know, and that was just the start of, of, of what, what happened. You know, as Mao established his authority, uh, created his control and imposed the, the one-party state. And because of these centralist policies, there was no give at all. There was absolutely no mercy. And, and, and so you, you had that sort of anti-rightist movement. Then, of course, you got these crazed um, economic um, and social policies that, 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 that matched Cambodia later on for, for, for the horrors it's inflicted on its, its people. I mean, you, you, you saw the, the, the famine that was induced uh, in the late 1950s by these unbelievably mad campaigns like the, uh, the campaign to kill sparrows, uh, a billion sparrows, uh, were, were, were killed by the population on s- command from the centre. And not only was it a massacre of sparrows, you then got mass starvation because the locusts and the, and the insects destroyed the crops. So mass starvation followed. That was certainly a key part of, of the, the, the end, the byproduct of, of this killing of, of sparrows. And and millions starved. I mean, fifteen to fifty-five million estimate. Yeah, 
yeah, I mean, we, we, we cannot even compute the numbers involved. And, and then again, you get, you get more starvation in the late 60s. I mean, this is during my lifetime. I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane. Yeah, just as one example, the, the Gaoshi massacre of 67 to 76, which was formed part of the Cultural Revolution, had an estimated uh, death toll of 100 to 150,000 with methods of execution involving beheading, beating, live burial, stoning, drowning, boiling and disemboweling alongside lynching, rape and cannibalism. Yeah, cannibalism was rife. I mean, the, the, it's no, I mean there was one woman who, who I, think, I think ate dozens of human livers. I mean, they, you know, in, in fact, they enticed some, some fat guy to, to visit their area just so they could eat him. I mean, th- this, is, this is one yeah, she, of... She was a real treasure. She ate six human livers, cut the genitals off five men, soaked them in alcohol, which she would drink later, claiming that these organs were beneficial to her health. Well, I mean, I guess, I, I, I guess it's one up on having a worm in the bottom of your alcohol bottle. Speak for your own worm. <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, yeah, but, we but, need to but, lighten the mood a bit. But, 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 but yeah, and, and, and it's never spoken of. I mean, it's mm. never talked about. And 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 you because know, people go straight from the Nazis and maybe the Saviors, you know, straight on to Cambodia and the killing fields. Mm. Before we move on to the next part, Rampage, we should just finish off with. Uh, the Cambodian genocide. Uh, there's a little bit more to say. I, I always feel sort of rather polluted talking about Cambodia and and the genocide. It it is it is on a scale and and a depth of depravity that one one can't really even imagine. Collective madness. It was collective madness, and in in a way, it sort of fills all these categories that we're we're covering, but we're putting in genocide because obviously it was genocide and. You know, between a quarter and a third of the nation was killed. Many of them were killed just for wearing spectacles because it meant you could read uh, and were therefore bourgeois and, and therefore deserved to die. Whether it was individual killing fields, such as the area at Chung Ek, where it's believed 17,000 people were killed, or Security Prison 21, the, the Security Prison Collective, where in scores of prisons, hundreds of prisons, uh, the executioners and warders, known as keepers of the peace, um, executed people uh, in, in so many different ways. And so often they even used children uh, to act as executioners because children wouldn't question orders. And it was just on an unbelievable scale. In, in, in fact, medics, doctors were, were, were murdered. And there were no doctors left really in the in the country in Cambodia so you ended up having to use children as medics as untrained medics because there were no professionals left and it it got uh, so out of control that it and they ended up killing each other well that's what happens with with any paranoid political system they 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 devour their own I mean we've we've talked about that many times in in our podcasts on civil war and revolutions and 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 uh, in despotisms you know this is what happens they 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 destroy their own people because you're always trying to put down um, opposition or, or potential upsurges in, in, in opposition against you. So, so the killing fields uh, where so many of these people ended up. 
So, so that is really the, the, the swathe of history that we, we cover in genocide. It, it, it's the most terrible subject, but it's one that, that needs to be discussed. Uh, and we need to be reminded of it because it's no point saying it couldn't happen again. It invariably does happen again. Right, next section, Rampage. Let's talk about uh, the French Revolution and the terror. It's worth bringing it in, Tom. Against so many of these these massacres and these horrors can can be put in any of the other categories, but it's worth putting in Rampage just to show how things start and how they end up devouring themselves. The participants end up devouring themselves. And once you get the French Revolution, once you get the the committee... Uh, of public safety, um, headed up by Robespierre. Once you get members of that committee, such as Saint-Just, these are hard-lined. You, know, you get the, the, the Jacobins, you get the people who, who are serious revolutionaries, and they want to kill. You know, they don't want to have pity. They don't want mercy shown. They don't want any kind of defence. They don't want due process, really, do they? And they want to simplify it down to a very basic form of justice. Completely. Acquittal or death. Those were really the two options. Once you get the law of 22 prayerals in uh, June uh, 1794, there, there's no relief for anyone. I mean, there's there's no mercy. You, you can't defend yourself. Well, you can defend yourself, but no one's going to listen. You're not allowed lawyers. You're not allowed witnesses. It's you against your accuser. And most people were, were not acquitted. Most people were condemned to death. And in that period of the terror, uh, around three and a half thousand people were were guillotined, and 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 the tumbrils were working all day. I mean, it taking people to to have their heads taken off. And there's always some particular individual who's willing to step forward and and implement uh, these uh, gruesome conditions. Well, of course, I, I, you know, we we talked about uh, the NKVD chief executioner blocking. Uh, you know, the, the terror in in France was was no different. You are always going to get police chiefs, executioners, prosecutors who who are who who are willing to impose the will. And and in a way, it is a kind of ra- it is a kind of rampage. It is a kind of massacre. Although this was drawn out. And, you know, and there were massacres later on, such as the 1871 massacre of the Commune in Paris, and that killed 25,000. You know, and that was far more of a rampage in a way. This this was ordered, the the, the terror in a sense. But but it, it fuels a fire, and that fire spreads. Yet it was inhuman. But at the, um, so this is uh, Louis Anton de Saint Just, who was known as the Archangel of Terror. He was on his own very mechanical rampage so he for instance to the army who he insisted on extreme discipline the army of the rhine in 1793 he said to his soldiers amongst other things that he'd come to avenge them and that he he said we have resolved to seek out to reward and to promote the deserving in other words the road to hell is paved with good intentions he goes on to say and to track down all the guilty, whoever they may be, all commanders, officers and agents of the government are hereby ordered to satisfy within three days the just grievance of the soldiers. After that, 
interval we will allow ourselves to hear any complaints, and we will offer such examples of justice and severity as the army has not yet witnessed. So he wasn't giving them much of a chance to get their house in order. Yeah, and didn't he go on to talk about no pity and no mercy? Absolutely. When they were pursuing the Herbertists, who all ended up on the guillotine, he said, no more pity, no weakness towards the guilty. Henceforth, the government will pardon no more crimes. Exactly. Well, I mean, look at Klaus Barbie, look at Napoleon's head of police. I mean, these were people who were going out and killing and, and making a show of it. You know, this was part of the part of policy, part of control, part of spreading a terror and making sure that the regime survived. Um, but those regimes never do survive because they, they devour themselves. Yeah. On the 28th of July, 1794, age 26, he met Madame Guillotine himself. Yes, and, and Robespierre and all the others on, on the committee also went that way. So, uh, at last... Uh, Watch out. A, a proper policy. <laughs> you know, if you, you go forward in history, you can go to, to Bloody Sunday in, in Russia. Yeah, that was 1905. I suppose, was it the first sort of firing of the revolution? It, it it was the first sort of real upsurge, and, and that was when the Tsar started getting worried. Well, there were thousands of demonstrators. They were marching towards the Winter Palace to petition the Tsar. Anyway, the army opened fire with um, 143 to 234 deaths and five to 800 injuries. And it was uh, yes, and it was certainly a precursor to what happened later, and 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 the and the storming of the Winter Palace, so and the seizing of 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 that government by the Bolsheviks. So you know the, these things, you know, a, a rampage can be the start, you know, of 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 things to come. It's not just uh, communist countries though that can uh, suffer from the rampage massacre syndrome. The Milai massacre, Tom, and once more, it's it's worth bringing these moments in because it shows that even an army, even a professional army, can go on a rampage, can get out of control, and although it's not endorsed by senior officials or senior army commanders, you know, it's lowered down the, the scale, you know, that an army that's been in an area long enough, that's been brutalised, that's frustrated, that's not achieving results. The red mist descends. The, the red mist descends. And you start dehumanising the population through which you're moving, you know, the, the villages you're moving. It's very easy to view another culture, particularly when you're there on a military mission, you're fighting an insurgency. You know, you can lose your empathy very quickly, particularly if you're being ambushed. And so it was on that day, the, 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 the 23rd Infantry Division, men from that division, different troops, uh, attacked that village and, and massacred the village. I mean, some say up to 504 uh, villagers were, were murdered. Uh, part of the problem was that, that actual insurgents were quite often difficult to find, so the only people left were civilians. And so the, the, there were terrible examples of, of children being killed, women being raped, beheadings, torture, you name it. And Yes, some people were charged, but, but only one was uh, given house imprisonment um, for about three and a half years. 
and that was a junior platoon commander. So, so, so the, the, the ramifications for those who were involved were, were very, very small. But um, it was a low point in um, but, Amer- but American military history. Really. It, it was a terrible low point. And the fact that we're talking about it today, it shows once again that, that, that a massacre can be a waypoint, a stepping stone. It was uh, a, yeah, it, I mean, they would have learned from that. Well, not only learning from it, it, it certainly fueled the, the anti-war movement in America. Once it got out, it, it became a total scandal. And, and in, in a way, that one incident seemed to encapsulate everything that was going wrong with the counterinsurgency campaign and the war in Vietnam. And so many people start asking, what are we doing and what are we doing there? So, so that's why it's worth bringing in the Milai massacre here because that rampage started things. You know, people look back to it, people talk about it. Sometimes the intention is not to massacre everyone, but essentially people get massacred, it comes to the same thing. But this, in this section, we're talking about the exploitation of a country, of a people, to get something out of it, and in the process, um, vast numbers die. Yes, so often it, it moves into the genocide category. And the Belgian Congo is one of the, of the horrors of history. We're talking 1885 to 1908, when King Leopold II of Belgium had direct control of uh, the Congo. You know, all the proceeds went back to him. It was his personal wealth, his personal edict. So it was supreme command, total command of that colony. And the result was death on an unimaginable scale. I mean, millions died. And it was because rubber was important. It was an important commodity. Uh, children were used in mass numbers. They were sent into the forest because you couldn't get mules in or donkeys in. Uh, and so children and other villagers were sent in. They had to slice the rubber plants and allow the latex to, to, to cover them. And then they would come out and have the, 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 the rubber scraped off them. I mean, this is, this is how you farmed rubber in the Belgian Congo. And they were visited the whole time by local commissioners. And were the villagers unable to produce enough, then hands were cut off. And hands, severed hands, became a currency in the same way that severed heads became a, a, a currency, not just a trophy in things such as the uh, Chinese massacre um, in the Philippines. I mean, th- th- this this was just standard practice. And you had people like Five, who were, was the um, commissioner, the governor of uh, the equator region of the Congo. And he... he the devil destroyed. of the equator. Yeah, the devil of the equator. I mean, he destroyed 160 villages. He was burning crops. He was mass murdering people. You look at Conrad's Heart of Darkness of 1899, and it just shows this 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 depth of depravity, that this depth of horror. This is why it became a useful template on which to base Apocalypse Now, this, this voyage down a river to see you know, what happened in the heart of this, this, this 
terrible darkness that like was like sliding was into hell, like Hades. Well, it, well, it was, and and these dreadful characters, the these satanic characters who who controlled the local population and were feeding on on the fear, feeding on the terror. And, and, and feeding on the, the resources that the local population were producing for them. And it's extraordinary that you, you contrast that with John Buchan's Prester John, which had a far more upbeat view of empire and colonialism. I mean, that was 1910. And there you had Ryder Haggart heading in to, to, to find this, this magical kingdom, this, this kingdom of gold and other resources. But it, but it had a far more positive attitude towards colonialism. And there was none of that level of oppression that was going on in the Belgian Congo. I mean, the Congo really stands out. And there are photographs of Belgian missionaries, you know, holding up, um, standing next to children, holding up their arms and their, their, their severed hands on them. And this was what was going on in the Belgian Congo. So, so it was exploitation and it was genocide. Staying on the continent of Africa, but further south on the west, in Namibia, we've got the, the Germans are in charge of that particular colony in Namibia, southwest Africa, and the Herero and Nama people come into a horrific collision with the German command. They do, because the Germans, again, not only did they want order in the area, they wanted to exploit it. And, and uh, there was an upsurge of, of anti-German feeling in German Southwest Africa. And so the Germans went into action and they forced hundreds of thousands of Nama people and Herero people into the deserts. They put them on a place called Death Island or Shark Island into concentration camps. And these weren't the same type of concentration camps that the British um, put Boer prisoners in, although or, or, or Boer women and children in, who, who then died from disease. These were torture camps. These were death camps uh, that was explicitly set up to, to kill um, the local population to, to subdue them, to pacify them uh, and destroy them. And downstairs, I, I've still got my grandfather's kit bag from that particular, from the campaign of 1914 when the Rhodesian army kicked the Germans out of Namibia. Um, and he, as a bugler and private soldier, was in that particular regiment. Yeah, and it was a, it was a tough slog. I mean, the, the, and and the desert regions. I mean, they were very harsh yeah. environment. Skeleton coast, isn't it, and all of that? Yeah, and there was certainly a lot of human skeletons around by the end of 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 that particular massacre, that particular policy of of pacifying the the population. Um, then you go later on in in that century. Uh, we're talking the nineteen thirties of the Nanking massacre. This is Japanese uh, invasion of China. The Nanking Massacre shows what can happen in war when an invading army, the Japanese Central Army, moved forward. Chiang Kai-shek took his army out because he didn't want it uh, surrounded or slaughtered. And what was left was a, a sort of ramshackle uh, militia that tried to hold up the Japanese advance. So once the Japanese uh, get in, they 
destroy it essentially and 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 we know about the japanese atrocities in in china i mean you you look at ningpo when they first used plague they were trying to spread plague with bombs filled with grain and fleas but nanking it just stands there as one of those horrendous massacres and uh, once more was was part of not just a genocide but an attempt to exploit the resources that china had to offer All right, Jamie, our next and final section is titled Cull, the Pragmatic Application of Psychopathy. Well, that's how I would describe it, Tom. Yes, I call it pragmatic psychopathy because it's expedient for political leaders or military commanders in many situations throughout history simply to kill, to to rely on expunging the opposition, of carrying the population, of getting rid of rivals. And this is a large section because there's so many aspects of the cull that they're, they're, they're really just a, an adjunct part of warfare in many parts of history. They're, they're part of genocide. They're part of overall policy. So the cull is important. I mean, the it, definition of cull is, is, is to reduce numbers, isn't it? Do, you know, it? Normally an animal in the wild, you need to reduce the number of deer or something like that. You cull them, you kill off. A percentage, it's very uh, unemotional. Yes, or you kill off a particular breed or you kill off a particular rival. You can come to the present day and you see August 23rd, 2023, you see Yevgeny Prigozhin culled seven hierarchs of the Wagner group suddenly crashing uh, in a fireball in their private jet north of Moscow. I think I'd call that an assassination. But 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 it's also a cull. It's also the desire to behead that hierarchy, and it's the, exactly the same number as as the, the number killed in the uh, St Valentine's Day massacre, of course, mm. uh, plus three three aircrew. But you know that's a modern version. You can go back in history to King Edward the First and his culling his massacre of 15,000 civilians in Berwick-on-Tweed, which really announced the start of his invasion in 1296 of Scotland. You know, there was the Scottish king, King John, uh, making an alliance with France, and up comes Edward I saying, we don't want this. You know, we, d- we don't want you to have an alliance with a, with a hostile nation. You owe your loyalty, your fealty to me and to England. And so you can view that as a cull as well. It's it's part of the overall warfare. It's part of the political approach and the the, the uh, warlike approach of that monarch. And it's, it's, it's a useful policy sometimes for those leaders. Right. Well, let's look at a specific example. In 88 BC, we had the Asiatic Vespers because Mithridates VI of Pontus had this creeping paranoia of the influence of the Latins, of of the Roman people, in his 
area. In he that wasn't part. wrong, was he? Well, in that part of Asia Minor. And, and what did he do about it? He creates a situation in which the population rise up and there is a cull, there's a, a killing of 80,000 uh, Latin people to put them in their place, to make sure that they don't rise up. It, it's this belief that you have to behead the, the serpent and once you've done that, once you put it to rest, it won't rise again or it will take a long time to reconstitute. And that, in fact, started the first Mithridatic War between the Roman Republic and Pontus and, of course, the Romans won. Well, there was always going to be this sort of fractious relationship between the Roman Empire and the, the, the spread of Roman influence and the periphery. And so those peripheral countries, those nations, whether they were rising up in civil war or they had leaders who didn't want to see their authority questioned, were going to take action against it. So you're always going to have these flare-ups. OK, uh, a thousand years later, in 1099, we had the Jerusalem massacres around the time of the First Crusade. You know, there, there was a, a strong political dimension, as much as a religious dimension, to that crusade. It was the crusade of the barons, really. It was the crusade of all those Norman knights. We, we mentioned Duke Robert of Normandy in our podcast on uh, royals in war. Well, here's the, the eldest son of William the Conqueror heading down on that crusade. And once Jerusalem is taken massacre ensues and it's completely out of control it's it's it, it is a massacre and the descriptions are quite extraordinary and and very grisly very gory and what in what they say to quote our men followed killing and slaying even to the temple of solomon where the slaughter was so great that our men waded in blood up to their ankles and also at the dawn, our men cautiously went up onto the roof of the temple and attacked Saracen men and women, beheading them with naked swords. Some of the Saracens, however, leapt from the temple roof. Tancred, seeing this, was greatly angered. And there's also evidence, and, and certainly chronicles and, and, and people who are writing about this, that, that children were roasted on spits. I mean, it was unbelievable wholesale slaughter but you could view this as a cull it, 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 what's extraordinary it was a cull of both jews and muslims the the crusaders weren't picky they simply wanted to seek revenge they wanted to impose their will and they wanted to ensure that no one could stop future pilgrimages to Jerusalem. This was now their domain. This is what they were going to control for the next 200 years. And, and so it was a policy. And a hundred years after that, we've got the massacre of the Latins in Constantinople. In 1182. Here was Emperor Andronicus watching the influence of Latin city-states growing in Byzantium and so he's, he saw the Venetian fleets grow, the, the, the influence of Venetian merchants grow and, and you can see this in the Crusader Kingdom as well, the, the antagonism and the rivalry between Pisa, Genoa, 
Venice. Uh, you know, when you come to the fall of Acre in uh, 1291, you get all the sort of clashes between those different groups. And that's why the, the, the sultans of Egypt could uh, take advantage of, of those rivalries and move in. So As, what, there's sort of no love lost between the various different groups? N- none whatsoever. It was a sort of fratricide, if you like. And, mm. and so Emperor Andronicus in, in Byzantium took advantage of this as well. He he saw the Venetians growing in influence, so he encouraged the Pisans and the Genoese and then realised their influence was growing and he had created this monster. So he just kept going. So, so again, this was his policy. He decided we must have a cull. So he had a lot of popular backing. He was a populist. So what should happen? The population go out and they slaughter. And I think they killed about 60,000 in, in that particular massacre, yeah. in that cull. There but, are only 4,000 survivors uh, from the Genoese and Pisan communities, and they were sold into slavery to the Sultan of Rum. Well, there you go. So, so, so not only is there a cull, but there's enslavement as well. So there is always that, that pragmatic aspect to it. It is policy, if you like. It, it, is, it is part of the overall policy. And also, I mean, he, uh, Andronicus, had a... He had a plan which was to unseat the child emperor, Alexios II, uh, and install himself. And so do, in doing all of this, he managed to, to achieve that and everyone was executed or massacred, including the regent who was Emperor Alexios's mother, Maria. And a Catholic, I believe. So, so the, the, again, it, it, there's this, there's this. He sort was of, clearing house. He was clearing house, and and you start getting this sort of clash between orthodoxy and Catholicism, and and, and different empires, different aspects of the empire, east and west, and and it all feeds in. And there's nothing like feeding sort of populist fervor uh, for a ruler to get people on his side and 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 act as his executioners as his cleansers. Constantinople seems to crop up almost every century. The people living there get it in the neck from someone uh, trying to take over the city, uh, as in uh, 1204 when there was uh, 2,000 civilians killed by crusaders who were passing by. The crusaders broke into the imperial crypt where they found Justinian I's body fully intact without any decay. Hmm. There you go. But I think if you're always at the frontier of an empire or the outpost of an empire, you're always going to be on the receiving end from, from either party. It was a huge <laughs> prize as well, wasn't it? It's a huge prize. And, and it's always sort of the result of politics and, and things that have gone wrong. And that crusade, 1204, it was supposed to head, of course, for the Holy Land, but it never got there. And people say it was because the Pisans let them down and didn't provide the ships or asking too much money. And so, so they were angry. And was these... it a classic case of the soldiers ending up basically attacking the baggage effectively, you know, getting sidetracked by the, by the riches on the way? And, and they don't show mercy. I mean, they yeah. go out and kill because yeah. they're angry and, and so they want their just rewards, so they go out and, and get them. But it, and then it, finally, in 1453... 
Well, then you get Mehmet the Second. Then you get the the Ottomans coming in and an absolute slaughter taking place there. The the, the massacre inside uh, the Santa Sofia and and it's 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 complete collapse of of really uh, Byzantium. That is really the, the the end of Christianity in in the Ottoman world in in that part of the world. So so. There was always this problem, and if you're on the outer edge of an empire, for example, the Crusader Empire or the Latin Empire, you are going to be hit by factionalism and by enemies coming in uh, from the from the east. But it's a pretty impressive uh, length of empire, wasn't it? Byzantium was really the the tail end of the Roman Empire, and it, but it waxed and waned, and that yeah. was one of the things that that that, and and some of the emperors were were totally mad and totally <laughs> either incompetent or mad, and that that was the history of most empires, I suppose, whether it was the Roman Empire uh, based in Rome or the Roman Empire based in Constantinople. It 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 had good leaders, it had terrible leaders. And ultimately, it, it was too far extended and couldn't no longer hold on against the, the, the massed forces of Islam. If we move to the 17th century and China, just briefly, the, the notable thing was the, the size when there was a massacre. The, the decimal point is moved extravagantly to the right. It always is in China, whether it's the size and scale of the battles or of the massacres. I mean, the the massacre at Sichuan, they say, was was about a million people were killed. Uh, at Yangzhou, they say, eight hundred thousand were killed. And the descriptions are unbelievable. I mean, we don't want to terrify our listeners, but it it, it is staggering the, the 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 scale of slaughter. I could give you a bit, and you can tell me when to stop now. <laughs> okay. Before we get to organs trampled like turf, yeah, okay. yes, as a baby's lying, canals yeah, filled uh, with bodies. Yes, yeah. and 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 that it could describe any massacre anywhere on earth. But but as you say, the the scale of massacre in China, just as when we mentioned in our podcast on contagion, that the scale of loss in the 1950s and the 1960s through government policy. You could say, in a way, that was a cull. Um, sometimes it was through incompetence. Sometimes it was a deliberate policy. And, and so th- this sort of carries on through history. But if you want a, an example of a cull, of a sort of politically motivated cull, in terms of putting down opposition, of ensuring there are not rivals coming up again, of ensuring that any nascent revolt is suppressed, you could look at the massacre, the cull, at Wounded Knee. It's a fascinating example of how scared authorities can be of something they don't understand, of a, of a movement that has a spiritual dimension. You can see this in China, you can see this in so many places where there's, there's an undercurrent. And so you, in 1890, you had the ghost dance war, you had Native Americans doing their ghost dance, believing that the Indian chief Wavoka had had, had this vision that the the dead would come back, the chiefs of the past would come back to join their earthly cousins. 
their brethren and, and, and help them defeat the American army. And so you get the, the 7th Cavalry moving into the area of the Lakota Sioux and uh, killing in this massacre at Wounded Knee in December 29th, uh, 1890, uh, 250 women and children. Uh, and it, it was a terrible massacre. How, how was it a cull, though? Well, it was a cull in that it was political. I mean, we talked about this this pragmatic psychopathy, this idea that you can use violence simply to suppress, that, that it will make a, a, a statement, it will make a difference, and that it will cow those who are watching. You know, the, the, the news will spread and it will kill off, in this case, the cult of the ghost dance. I mean, the ghost dancers believed that their outfits could uh, ward off bullets, for example. And you've seen this in so many places in Africa and other parts of the world where a, a religious movement starts or a cult starts and they believe that the spirits will protect them or their clothing, their, their magic... Uh, items will protect them, their charms, talismans will, will, will protect them against uh, the force of the enemy. In this case, it didn't, although the women and children obviously weren't armed anyway. The, 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 the men were away from the camp. And if I can give a, a shout-out for a friend of mine here, uh, Susanna White, the, the movie director, who, who did a fantastic film called Woman Walks Ahead, with this story of the ghost dancers and of Chief Sitting Bull, who had been linked to the Battle of Wounded Knee in Custer, and w was this legend. There's this amazing scene where his circus horse that he has, because he joined, of course, Cody's Circus, and was given this circus horse. And there's this amazing bit at the end where the circus horse does this dance, almost like a ghost dance, but actually it's a, it's a horse, not, not, not the locals doing it at the end. But it, it's, it's, it's a lovely film, so it's worth, worth watching. What's uh, it called again? It's called Woman Walks Ahead. Uh, right. Because it, it was about this American woman who was obsessed, this white American woman who who throws the portrait of her husband into the river and goes to, to find, to seek out Chief Sitting Bull on his reservation where he's retreated. And and it's an amazing story and, and a really great film. I, I love that film. And uh, so well done, Susanna. And uh, I think even De Niro enjoyed the film too. <laughs> right, enough name dropping. Yeah, that's my that's my plug for the day. Well, and about the same time, uh, eighteen ninety four to eighteen ninety seven was the Hamidian massacres, the massacre of the Armenians by the Ottomans, uh, and the Ottomans have a terrible history of of slaughtering the Armenians. Uh, far more than that were killed later on. So it, this has gone on through history. Again, it's policy. It's so still an open wound today. Isn't it? it is an open wound, and 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 so often, as we mentioned right at the beginning of the, this 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 entire podcast, these massacres are often waypoints that that they're they're part of the foundation myth of of, of nations, but they're also a sore. They're also this is a running wound that goes through international relations, relations within communities and between states. You, Jamie, mentioned the massacre at the Katyn Wood of the 22,000 Polish officers by the Soviets. 
and it is worth mentioning the victims included an admiral, two generals, 24 colonels, 79 lieutenant colonels, 258 majors, 654 captains, 7 naval captains, 85 privates and 3,420 NCOs, amongst others. This was all done by the NKVD. And you can see that this is policy. This is on the direct orders of Stalin. Yeah, it, secret it, it, orders. The secret orders of Stalin. And it, it, it was seen as necessary. It was a way of beheading the Polish opposition, of killing off the Polish army, the entire leadership well, they Poland's killed. Yeah, army. they executed almost half the Polish officer corps. Yeah, this is exactly what was required, and the fact that the Soviets never admitted this till 1990 speaks volumes about the the secrecy and the bloodshed and brutality of the Soviet state and of the Russian nation. I might add, and we're seeing it again today in the same way that the torture chambers that are being uncovered in every liberated town and city and village and in, in Ukraine, uh, that is there as direct policy. It is there to cow, it is there to control, it is there to ensure that opposition does not raise its head. So this is why it's, it's useful to, to look at massacres. It's not a pleasant subject, but it is part of history. And lastly, before we move on to our postscript, we have to mention the worst genocide since the Second World War, 1995, Srebrenica. 8,000 Bosnian Serbs, um, boys and men, uh, taken out and killed and essentially handed over by the Dutch who were there to guard them. I mean, and it was part of this policy of clearing uh, 20,000 Bosnians out of that area, out of Srebrenica. And so this was the end result. Why, why did the Dutch hand them over? Were they just outnumbered? By the they, they were outnumbered. They were poorly led. I think they have been castigated and condemned for what they did. Uh, it has cost the Dutch dear, I think, in terms of reputation, uh, in terms of uh, their moral stance, their ineptitude and lack of professionalism, and, and their sheer inability to stand up for what is right. And, and, and so they stepped back and let the Serbs move in. And it was, it was a cull on the part of the Serbs. It was horrifying. And if you're going to be a peacekeeper, if you're going to move into an area, have the backbone to actually keep the peace. That, that really is the moral. But, but it's worth mentioning. It's worth sort of showing this as, as it's a, a yet another stain on history, but it's certainly a stain on the reputation of, of peacekeepers. That Do they, you think they had the, um, you know, the rules of engagement? Were they allowed to open fire? If, um, in, Oh, was, it, uh, was it the leadership, the political leadership, or was it the it, it, It's a combination of both, and I certainly know that there were British officers out in that part of the world who who were who saw what was going on in 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 parts of that conflict, and when there was the collapse of Yugoslavia in the civil war, who just couldn't believe that. Uh, Allied armies were not stepping up, that, that, that forces were not stepping up to, to do what they were sent to do. 
um, all, all, all the, 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 the sort of rival forces were not actually stepping up to fight in the way they should have fought. So there, there was a lot of frustration, a lot of confusion, and a lot of uh, different agendas going on. It's always been said, for example, that the French allowed all the Serbian war crime suspects to escape by tipping them off. Because, of course, France were, were friends with the Serbians. And so th that was one of the byproducts as well. So all the way through, you, you have, you know, the policy of the Serbs, and then you have the weakness of, of, of Western nations that allowed it to happen in the same way that one could say that the weakness of the West allowed Putin to get away with it for so long. So, so this is one of the reasons that massacres happen. People don't step up, people don't see what's happening or choose to not see what is happening. And, and, and that is really uh, one of the lessons of history, of course. Okay, postscript time, postscript. That's been quite a tough uh, run through on massacres, so we'll end with a famous mini-massacre, the 14th of February, 1929. The St Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, who can forget it? it? It has entered folklore and entered many movies, and it's when members of the Northside gang Seven of them were lined up against a wall by four men, uh, two dressed as police officers, two carrying shotguns, two carrying Tommy guns, and murdered. It was the enforcers, it was the hierarchs, really. A bit like the, the Wagner group crashing. But the one person who wasn't there was George Bugs Moran, the head of the gang, the Northside gang. And it was the height of... Prohibition. It was the height of gangsterdom. You, you had this rivalry born of not just of, of business rivals and crime boss rivalry. You, you had this rivalry between different nationalities. You know, the Northside Gang were essentially um, Polish and Irish. And Al Scarface Capone, of course, was Italian. So it's really the Italians versus the Irish and the Poles. And it's, it's the same dynamic you see in cities like New York, the, the, the same tensions, the same uh, trying to carve out um, the, the, the crime lands, you know, the, 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 the hunting grounds of each, each group. The famous thing about it also was um, the use of the Thompson machine gun, the Tommy gun. Yeah, and the, and the Tommy gun, um, the word iconic is used far too often, but it was and is iconic. I mean, Winston Churchill was uh, photographed carrying a Tommy gun. And, but, and, and didn't Hitler just call him a gangster? <laughs> completely. And, and it became the, the, the weapon of choice of gangsters and, of course, of, of, of many soldiers in the, in the Second World War. I mean, well over a million were produced in the, in the Second World War. It was actually invented in 1918, first produced, but it was too late to, to enter service and production at that time because the, the, the Americans wanted a weapon that could clear trenches. And this had a, 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 the ability at 150 feet to, to wipe out anything in front. It was 45 caliber. It was a heavy weapon. 
you know, it, it, it weighed 14 pounds fully loaded. Um, you know, compared to that in the Second World War, the Sten gun, for example, it was sort of twice the weight of, uh, of an empty Sten gun. So it, it was a heavy beast and expensive. And in the late 1920s, it was about $200. And some say that's about sort of $3,000 plus today. So it, it, it wasn't cheap. But it, it was a damn good weapon. It was very useful and, and much sought after. And also famously used by the SAS commander Paddy Main in the North African desert, 14th of December 1941. Tamet in North Africa, where the German and Italian air forces had their air bases. Yeah, it was one of those great SAS raids involving jeeps driving onto the... Uh, the airstrip and blowing up planes but it was also notorious because Paddy Main entered the officers mess and managed to gun down with his accomplices his men uh, 30 um, pilots and aircrew uh, both Italian and German but it has to be taken into account that the SAS as they are now were strategic troops they were there to destroy uh, enemy air power and you had to do that by killing pilots and by destroying aircraft and it's worth remembering that by the end of the war in North Africa the SAS had destroyed more German aircraft uh, than the Royal Air Force had in North Africa so they were extremely useful so so that incident has been sort of focused on but but it must be taken into account that those troops on that mission didn't have the room to take prisoners and who knows if any of those Germans or Italians had actually responded and, and caused uh, the far fight that, that followed, the, the massacre that followed but that is the, the sort of line of the Tommy gun, that's the history of the Tommy gun, it was used for clearing out and it did a very good job. So it, it's probably worth bringing that in uh, at this point, it, you know, the, the Tommy gun in, in, in terms of its use in massacres. So that is our postscript today. I have to say that I would have, would have loved to have had a go with a Tommy gun. It would be a very cool weapon to try out. I think any submachine gun. On a range, gun. of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've only fired a Sterling submachine gun. And that, and that, They're that terrible. Was... I mean, we had to fire those things. They were made out of old bedding. Yeah, they were just sort of pea shooters. But, uh, quite, the only, uh, the notable thing, if you look at the early Star Wars movies, the very first one, the stormtroopers are carrying their laser weapons. All they are is their SMG with the stock folded away. That's what they used. Yes, and uh, yes, they would probably have indulged in massacres too. I'm sure. Well, Jamie, thank you for laying out, explaining all the different types of massacres that uh, people get off, up to, whether it's the foundation of nations, uh, genocide, on a rampage, exploitation of other people, or the cull. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. You've been listening to Bloody Violent History with Tom and Jamie. Please pass this podcast on and thank you for your support and good luck. Thank you.